Hello and welcome to Are We Nearly There Yet? I'm Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. For me, I've been in some unusual situations, in, particularly in Africa, involving guns and the police and places people otherwise probably don't want to be. So maybe you don't want to be that adventurous, but it's just doing something exciting in your life. Before we start, I have to tell you that this episode offers two for one. My guest and their squeaky chair. This shouldn't detract too much from the career journey that unfolds. Today I'm talking to David King, who works in the charity sector following a successful career in accountancy, including with the National Health Service, the NHS. Uh, he currently chairs Engage, which is a youth charity, and the Brockbank Foundation, and is a part-time teacher of English as a second language with the Manchester Adult Education Service. David is married with three grown-up children and lives in South Manchester. Welcome, David, and thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great to join you, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. Great. So, David, you grew up in Glasgow. Uh, tell me what you were like as a kid at school. Um, OK, well, I, I was never top of the class. Um, in fact, at primary school, um, I can remember that I progressively went nearer the, bot the front of the class. You have to remember, I'm so old, that at that time they had this ridiculous scheme where you were tested every week and you were at the back and in mark order. So the, using this word in a terrible sense, the thickest person was at the front, which is shocking. So it was always, always obvious who was the cleverest and who wasn't. So uh, usually I was generally towards the back. At one point I ended up near the front and then they realized that I needed glasses and I couldn't read what was on the board. So uh, secondary school, I think um, I had some good friends. Uh, I. Uh, my study technique was never brilliant, more of that when we get to university. Um, but I, I did work quite hard and I, I managed to scrape through. Um, I don't think I was particularly a leader. Um, and I was hopeless at sports, so I never led in any form of sports. Completely very enthusiastic, full marks, coordination, no marks. Um, but as I look back, I, I did become a house captain at one point, and I, I can't. As you, as I was preparing for this, I can't remember why that happened, but it did. So right. there you go. Yeah. And, and in terms of sort of subjects that you enjoyed at secondary school, what, what were your top sort of subjects? Um, I, I think I was better at science, um, quite good at maths, um, and I enjoyed but um, struggled with English, sorry, with languages. I, English I enjoyed, actually, and I, which I still do enjoy reading and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what do you think attracted you to, to study law then at, at university in Glasgow? Um, well, probably a, a bizarre sequence of events. So when I was 13 or 14, um, the context is, um, in terms of the family that I was aware of, uh, my wider family, no one had been to university. So 
I had no obvious um, role models in the family. Um, I had some distant relatives, but who we didn't particularly see. I think I later discovered some of them had been to university. But I, I saw a TV programme, and I only remember this very vaguely, saying what a wonderful career the law was. And that stuck. I don't know why. And I think what happened then was my parents said, that's a wonderful idea. So it never dissuaded me or really went through with it. Well, why? Um, now, the only difference that made at that point was work a bit harder at school. And because at that time to get into Glasgow University Law School, you had to have a Latin O-level because some of the subjects, believe it or not, still required Latin translations because we studied with Roman law was part of the Scottish system. So I changed to do that. Other than that, I just kept working. That's why the law. Yes. Not a compelling reason. <laughs> Fascinating, isn't it? What, yeah. what what compels you to do certain things at, at, at that time? Because so so you you did your degree. How do you think you changed as a person at university? Because it's quite a a step, isn't it? Step up from 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 school in many ways. Um, well, it was. It's. I mean, I think I sometimes think I've had quite a unique, strangely unique life. Um, I, when I was at university. From Glasgow, something like 60% of the people at university were still living at home. It was the Scottish way, um, in a sense. And I wasn't enough of either a rebel or independent-minded to think I, I'd like to go away from home. I'm not sure my parents ever considered the financial impact of that. So they didn't either try to put me on or put me off. Probably because they hadn't quite worked out what difference it would make. Um, so I went to Glasgow because at that time it was perceived to be one of the top law universities. Um, how did it change me? I Well, not as much as other people because I retained the same group of school friends because two of my best friends went also went to Glasgow University. Um, one was doing civil engineering and one was doing, um, uh, I think it was biology or chemistry. But, so the good thing about that was at least we weren't in the same classes all the time because we were doing completely different types of degrees, but we still... So I made a few new friends, but not as many as, as I would have done. I think one thing I discovered how is, was how appalling my approach to studying was because I struggled. I think I was capable of doing better at university, but I struggled with all the exams. So my study technique, my exam technique, not great. Um... It taught me resilience and persistence because it wasn't academic or intellectual qualities that got me through university. It was sheer dogged, never mind how many resets I have to do, I'm going to get a degree in the end, and I did. It wasn't a terrible time. Socially, I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the classes. You know, I, I, look, I look back on it as a, 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 as a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so then when you, you'd got your degree in law, uh, you went and became a trainee accountant. So Yes, well, I, I, again, you know, what causes um, these changes? Um, for people who are listening to this who might be Christians and know that I'm now a Christian, um, maybe saying, well, why is David not talking about, well, this was difficult, so I asked God for help. Well, at the time... I had a Christian background. I wasn't a Christian. I hadn't decided to follow Jesus at this point. Um, I, I went to church. I was a member of a Christian organisation called the Boys Brigade. And um, in character terms, that taught me a lot. 
And this was while I was at school and university because I carried on to be a leader after, after that happened. And that taught me a lot about leadership because I was given responsibility um, for taking boys on, on expeditions where you had to look after yourself in Scottish winters out in the snow uh, and lots of other ways. Um, yeah, so at university, anyway, halfway through university I thought, law could be a bit boring, that could be a bit restrictive. So for reasons that were perhaps not a lot stronger than the reasons for choosing law in the first place, don't laugh, accountancy would be much more exciting. <laughs> um, and so I changed the subjects I was doing to make sure that I had the maximum exemption from the professional exams. So I didn't do conveyancing or property law, which I didn't have to do, but I did do political economy and um, commercial law as subjects. So it got me the law degree, but it also got me ma um, maximum exemptions from the um, the accounting yeah. exams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, so then you, you, you finished the law degree and you went into accountancy. How did you find that transition into the world of work? Because again, that's another, another um, change, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so I I think what, one of the transitions was that in terms of my examination technique and being more focused about passing exams, uh, I there were two major professional exams. The first one, I failed the first one uh, and that really woke me up. And I thought, I've had enough of this. Fortunately, there was a reset three months later. And so within the next nine month period, I passed both the first and the second exam because I made sure I passed the reset and passed the, the next one first time. So um, I, I can't describe what it was that changed, but it just gave me a bit of a jolt. You know, enough of this doing exams more than once. Just get this over and done with. Um, the world of work, um, I, I, I just found it really interesting. Um, I, I didn't find it, I don't know, maybe my confidence was building. I enjoyed going out to lots of different clients. I enjoyed understanding new businesses because that was a lot of the work I was doing. To, to do the financial checks, you had to understand the business. Uh, meeting new people, learning new skills. Uh, and that's something that's with me today. You know, when, when I get involved in something, like, what, what really makes this tick? You know, I, and, and that's, I learned that at that time, because to do the job properly, it wasn't all about filling this form and how much did that cost. That was part of the job, but it was, what's the essence of this business? And so what do I need to understand to say these figures are correct? And that requires quite a lot of insight, doesn't it? And yes, knowing and where to look and listen. Being listen curious. To mm, being yeah. curious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you were doing that, in London, so you, you must have moved from Glasgow down to no, London? No, interesting, um, I, if you had said to me in my, as I started my career in accountancy, where are you going to be in five years' time, I would probably have said some sort of a qualified accountant manager in a firm in Glasgow. Uh, yet five years later I was in Canada. Now, at this time in my life, I think I'd been out of Scotland maybe four or five times. So, um, and now this is where I would say God did start interfering in my life because uh, there were a lot of people in, in my year in the finance firm. Uh, it was the year 
the start of the graduate entry, but also the tail end of the going from A-level entry. So we had twice as many graduates qualifying or qualified accountants within the medium-sized firm I was with than they needed. They couldn't keep us all on. They didn't offer me a job. Um, so I said, right, let's be really exciting. And I think I applied for a job in Brussels. Don't ask me why. And a job in London, because that will be exciting. Uh, I got offered a job in London. And before I left, the firm came back to me and that I was working for and said, actually, we don't have enough people. Do you want to stay with us? I'm, I'm really glad, not because I didn't like them, that I said, no, I'm going to London. I want an adventure. Um, so, and that was the start of me, because I wasn't particularly confident at school, gaining in confidence and saying, that door looks a lot more interesting than this door. I'm going to walk through it. Uh, and then, of course, you get to London, you're working on international clients, and you suddenly re and you meet people, because in the London office, all of a sudden, there's people here who've come from South Africa, Australia, working in that office, and you just meet people from different backgrounds. You're working with people from different backgrounds. Um, mm. And so, yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So you did end up in Canada for four years. How, how did you find that as a um, sort of cultural shock or a oh, um... yes and I, I you know I, I look back and I say there was a hand that uh, that was guiding my destiny and that that was God um, because I had thought KPMG offices all over I had applied for a job in Hong Kong I think I might have been offered one actually um, then my manager said there's someone here from a small town in Canada. He couldn't even remember the name of the place. And I said, he said, you trained with a, a small firm. They're looking for someone with that experience. You're the only one in London office that's got it. Do you want to speak to him? So, well, where is he? He's in the departure lounge at Heathrow Airport because he's, he's on his way back to Canada. So you need to go and see him now. Well, I think it was the next morning, but something like, like that. So anyway, I went and saw him. He offered me a job in the departure lounge at Heathrow Airport uh, and we had thought we might start a family so we were thinking apartment in Hong Kong on the 20th floor uh, you know so maybe it'd be better going to this small town that no one's ever heard of in Canada so we did um, and yeah I, I think it's just life's been an adventure and I remember we got to the airport, those were the days when perhaps the, the new person care wasn't all that great. So we turned up at this airport having flown on our first ever international flight to another continent. We arrived at the airport after three flights. Uh, no one came to meet us. Now, actually, we knew that. I, it's, it's pretty shocking. They should have done. Um, so we had to hire this car that was bigger than a bus to drive into the town uh, and I'm thinking, I'm going to go off the road here because this car seems bigger than the road. You know, it was just a standard-sized, very large American car. Um, yeah, and then you check into a motel because no one had booked anything. So we just drove to a motel, booked ourselves in, um, had pancakes for breakfast, went to the office the next morning and said, Hello, I I'm David. I'm your new employee. <laughs> were they expecting you? <laughs> they were expecting me, yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness uh, and for it, that. From then on, they were very helpful, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Funny. Yeah. Um, I don't remember being terrified at the time. I probably should have been, but... Mm. You just you went, went with it. 
one step you're at a time, just, just take the next step. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. So you were, you were four years there, and then you you came back. Um, was that when you uh, started working with the NHS trusts, or no, no? So um, four years in Canada. Yeah. We had gone for two. Yeah. Because we kept on thinking we were going back to Scotland. Right. So it was two years in Canada, then we'll go and settle down. What mm-hmm. a ridiculous thing to say when you're 29. But anyway. <laughs> um, so, but we had two children in Canada. Um, I became a Christian. So instead of just going to church, I actually made a decision. There's another story there, but um, which really changed my life to follow Jesus intentionally. Um, so from that point on, I was thinking, as well as where do I want to go next? I wonder where God wants me to go. Um, so we had a decision to make because if you're that far away from your original home, if you do nothing, you'll just end up staying in the same place or the same country. So we positively said, do we want to stay here where we're very happy? And actually we'd taken out citizenship because at that time you could. So I'm a dual national of Canada and uh, the UK. But we thought, no, if, if we don't go back now, we'll never go back. And that's, so we went back. Um, there were no jobs in Scotland, so we went to Manchester, or I should say we came to Manchester, because I'm now sitting in Manchester. Again, we thought, two years here, and we'll get, once there's a vacancy in Glasgow, we'll go back there. Anyway, very happy in Manchester. I didn't apply for a job for about another 10 years. That one job I didn't get, so we stayed in Manchester. Uh, still with KPMG, though, for another seven years or something. Um, now why did that change? Thoroughly enjoyed the job, new experience, new people, but I had got to the stage where I knew that I wasn't going to go up anymore. And really it's the sort of firm, like a lot of the big law and uh, accountancy firms, is up or out. And that's not a bad thing, that's just the way they work. So I got to the stage of saying, well, I don't want to drift along. I'll try something else. Uh, I'd actually been looking at the private sector because at that time, if you worked in the private sector, you had a pretty poor view, to be honest, of the public sector, dead-end jobs, people without imagination, all that sort of stuff. Um, But someone bumped into me, who I knew, and said, oh, we've been looking for an accountant, and we didn't appoint one, but it's the NHS. would Would you be interested? So I did, well... Nothing, I'll come and chat. So, um, by the way, I did go for some competitive interviews, but again, I went to see the finance director, who I think because it was the second time round, obviously liked the cut of my jib and offered me a job. And it wasn't an interview, it was just come along and have a chat. And he's, well, so anyway, I, I decided to go for it. Um, and actually, it, it was great. Because I loved the business. Very varied. Uh, I liked finding out about the business because I've always liked that. So it wasn't the numbers to me, that, although that was a major part of my job. It was how, talking to the consultants about how they worked. And huge amount of politics. And I, I liked the people side of things. It made life very difficult at times, but it also made it very interesting. Um, and uh, when I say politics, I meant, mean medical politics there. And for, 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 for any... Um, consultant doctors who are listening to it, they know what I mean. <laughs> um, but it just made the job interesting and um, fascinating. And it was a time of growth in the NHS. I was, 
I was fortunate that I seemed to join. So the income was coming up. They wanted to introduce management and better management processes. So I was able to contribute to that. Um, mm. Yeah, exciting times. And tell us a little bit about more about the sort of people side of things, because that's one of the things, you know, when you're going into your sort of first mm. job, you kind of think about well, what I know in my head and what I'm going to do in my work. But actually the people dimension is hugely yes. important, isn't it? Um, I think the, 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 for me, the, the, there were a few things that were, that were challenging, but challenging in a good way. Because I went into the finance department in the NHS and there were indeed a lot of people, some of whom are still, I'm still in touch with, who had been in the NHS from the start of their career. And so, who is this guy who's joined us? He's come straight in from somewhere else. I, I, and then I started getting promotions. Uh, but, you know, I, I did make it my thing I, to... Um, be friendly with them to understand where they were coming from. Uh, the same with, you know, the doctors uh, and nurses and other professionals. I'd, I would go and say, I'm your budget manager. But my first question was not, let's go over the figures. It's saying, can I sit in one of your outpatients sessions with you? Um, uh, you know, the, the cardiac surgeons, can, can I actually watch you doing open heart surgery? So for, for anyone who's seen that, that was a bit of a shocker. <laughs> um, uh, to what they were, you know, but in other words, you have to gain credibility with people before you start doing the nuts and bolts of your job, or or, or else, uh, if you haven't developed that relationship, when you have the difficult discussions, they're either impossible or much more difficult than they need to be. When people know you're interested in what they're doing, um, and you understand what they're doing, it just. I think that for me that was always an important life lesson. Absolutely, and you understand yeah. the context from their perspective, and you see things through their eyes better, don't you? Yeah, you've got sympathy, and also yeah. people can't pull the wool over your eyes because yeah. they they can say something, say, "Well, but, but that's not the way you do things," because it's I've been with you. I, I mean, a, a classic example um, is uh, we we had a huge financial problem, and. To, several people lost their jobs over, over it. And it was basically the drug budget was completely out of control. And I said, well, what's going on here? <clears throat> and it was basically one single budget, no analysis. So we knew who we were spending the money on, but no one knew who was committing the expenditure. Obviously, it was doctors make, writing prescriptions. Uh, but other than that, and no one was actually in charge of that budget because the pharmacists were just providing the drugs. And I said, right, we need to get some data out here and start analysing it. Uh, no one would talk to me. But then I got some pharmacists on side. Uh, I went to the surgeon, the professor of surgery, sat down and said, so this is what you want to do. He called me Mr King. He was Scottish as well, quite funny. And he looked at me, he said, uh, I understand what you're trying to do, Mr King. You'll never do this. He wasn't being antagonistic. He just didn't believe I could do it. Now, 18 months later, because it took a long time, I was, by that time, giving him analysis of what the drugs expenditure was. And I went and sat down with him again. I'd been with him several, and he looked at me and he said, you know, Mr King, I'm, I'm still not particularly interested in managing the money, but I've been looking at your analysis, and some of my junior doctors are prescribing drugs that I'm not very keen on. 
but now I can see them. So I'm going to change that. <laughs> so, you know, it's like a, the information helps you manage things better. He was using it for a different reason. Uh, you know, and in the end, everyone liked that. Because I, I, my, one of my lines was, and I'll stop, stop in a minute, was, look, I'm, the only money I'm incurring is my own, my own salary. You, this is because I'd generally be talking to doctors, you're incurring this, you're writing the prescriptions, but you, you don't know, you know medically whether it's good, you don't know whether, from a budget point of view, how much you're incurring. Sure. You need to know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. That's right. Oh, that's interesting. That. Very instructive. So, so then you sort of, you help to sort of set up when the sort of Manchester Primary Care Trust... And that sort of led to quite a big change, sort of career-wise, for you, didn't it? Um, ultimately, you know, of moving then into the sort of charity sector and 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 teaching English as a as a second language and all, all of this. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that period in your yeah, life and, so and how it I, felt I, and how you responded? Yeah, I was going um, through several changes um, mm. in jobs and. I, Although I was in the NHS for, I think, 13 to 15 years, something of that order, I actually never did the same job for more than two years. I, and that was good because I was moving on. I'm doing more interesting things, um, uh, having hopefully achieved something in each of the jobs that I was doing. Um, but it was also a time when there was, there was always, and always has been, a lot of political tinkering in the NHS. That meant I was going through, through reorganisations every two or three years. Uh, and so I came to the point where I was a chief, a chief executive. Now, I didn't actually aspire to that. I aspired to being a director of finance. I did that twice for two different organisations. And then because of some other moves, I was asked to be a temporary chief executive. Uh, the opportunity came, I applied and became the permanent chief executive. The day after that, I went to see my ultimate boss, who said, in about 18 months' time, because of the new reorganisation, your organisation is not going to exist. I just thought I'd tell you that. And I thought, OK, <laughs> I've got 18 months in this job, and most of it is just going to be managing a change to a new organisation. Now, at the end of that time, uh, I and that taught me a, a lot about people skills, because it was all about managing people's expectations through changes. Um, I applied for another job. I was told that I wouldn't get it. Now, for me, two interesting things happened was I, I didn't just want to carry on because my job was guaranteed, which it was, or my salary was guaranteed, my job wasn't guaranteed. But I thought, at this point, I was 55 at the time. Do I want to do a job that... I'd always applied for jobs and got them, the one I was looking for. There was only one job I'd ever had where I thought, this is too technical, I'm not enjoying this. And I managed to move on fairly rapidly. Um, one interesting thing was, from a Christian point of view, on the day I found out that I couldn't get the next job, I, I was chairing a meeting with quite a few people in it, and I got the phone call. I had to go take the phone call. I came in and I said to a colleague, look, um, I've just been told I'm not going to get the next job. I just don't feel up to continuing chairing this meeting. I need to go home and just sit down for the rest of the day. Um, could you take over as chair of the meeting? Now, should you be quite well, um, but, but perhaps in view of what I'm about to say, not as well as I, I thought she did. And she took me aside and she said, David, so, because she knew exactly what had happened. Um, 
when you go home, will there be someone else there? Well, I thought, that's a strange question. And as you're looking at me, and, and I, as I was going home, it, I suddenly twigged. She thought, it's the end of his career he, as he knows it. He's, his life is a catastrophe. If there's no one at home, he might go home and top himself. You know, well, you know, to be, I was devastated, but it was my pride that was devastated. It wasn't my life that was devastated, you know. Um, and I, within 40, 48, I got over it because, you know, I had my faith and my family. That was much more important than my job. I was significantly invested in my job, but it wasn't the end of my life. So that just taught me something about, you know, when you deal with other people, sometimes their, their job can be the most important thing and be careful how you deal with it. And, and for Christians, don't let it, well, for other people, don't let it become the more important, most important thing. You know, I was totally invested. You know, I was, my pride was demolished, but only for a short time. You know, I recovered quickly. Um, and so I, I then went on and I, three months later, I had retired because I, I could, because I was 55, I could take early retirement, which I chose to do. I had zero plans for the first time in my life. I didn't need a salary, I had a pension. And what do I do next? Um, some people were saying to me, David, great job. Be a consultant. Just go in and out of firms. You can make lots of money, more than you were making before. My, thought, my response to that was, not to them in my mind, I don't need any more money. I've paid off the mortgage. The children have finished university. I could do that, but is that what I want to do? To be honest, I didn't know what I wanted. I did not know. Um, so I had three months of doing nothing and listening for God as a Christian and looking out for opportunities. Um, and actually then, out of that, there, there's more detail in there, um, I decided not to get more paid work. The only paid work I eventually did was the teaching I'm doing now because I had time to do a certificate in teaching English to speakers of other languages. That was something I did. I got involved in a charity that reaches out to visiting Chinese academics, um, a cultural and language exchange. I'm still doing that. Connection with that took me to China. Every I've been to China. At that point, I'd never been to Africa and I'd never been to Asia. In the last 14 years since retirement, I've been to Africa 10 times. I've been to China nine or 10 times. Only one of those was a holiday. All of the rest I was volunteering with charities either I was leading or charities I heard about. So I've had this massive adventure. It's been wonderful. And, you know, very little finance in there because I, you know, I did enough. I'm bored with finance. I like dealing with people now and I, I, I do enjoy teaching English as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. So, so I mean, given that, that whole adventure which is you, you talked about it at the start as an adventure. If you think back to the young David at school who had seen that, that law was a thing to do, you know, um, what would your advice be to the young David now? Um, well, it would still be, uh, you know, d look at all the options. Um, I mean, maybe this is just me, you know, but... Make, make life an adventure, but adventure is different things for different people. You know, I, 
for me, I've been in some unusual situations, in, particularly in Africa, involving guns and the police and places people otherwise probably don't want to be. Um, so maybe you don't want to be that adventurous. But it's just doing something exciting in your life. Do, in terms of your job, um, I think, and it's more true now, than it, but even for me, there's no such thing as the wrong job. There's, are you learning something? Uh, are you gaining skills? Perhaps qualifications, that can be useful at times. But particularly, you're learning how to deal with people, you're learning skills. You could take that into another job, you know. Um, so just do something useful and don't worry too much about is this the right job for me? Well, you know, you're going to be working for another 30 years. You, you can change. Yeah. Um, the only wrong job is, is a dead-end job where you don't like it and you're not learning anything. You know. And there's not many of them around. and I think you can avoid them if you, if you try a little. Um, yeah, and don't worry, you know, don't worry if you're not top of the class or the top student or the top person in your... Just keep going. I think dogged persistence can often be better than high qualifications and a sharp intellectual mind. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, dogged, dogged persistence, people and adventure. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. great. Dave, thanks so much for your time uh, today. It's been really interesting chatting with you. and Lots of really encouraging lessons and how your faith has, has also been a sort of mainstay through your life as well. So yeah. I really appreciate your openness and uh, willingness to share all of that. Thanks. Good. Well, thank you. It's been, uh, it's been great to chat. And hopefully some people find some of that helpful. Yeah, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Yeah. Thanks, David. enjoyed this podcast to help others enjoy it too please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate and review thank you